we talk about the tradition and we talk about the expectations. Uh, we talk about the culture that we want to create. We talk about the history. The standards are incredibly high and they're going to stay high. They're not going anywhere. And it's up to them to meet those expectations. Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is presented to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. Now, in this episode, I welcome Descahe Bomberry, pitching coach and recruiting coordinator for Sac City College. Coach Baum received the ABCA Award for Assistant Coach of the Year, and he was the first junior college coach from the Pacific region to receive this honor. On the show, we discuss how Coach Baum first became involved in not just baseball as a player, but also his conversion into coaching and the initial moves that brought him to Sac City. He also provides a ton of advice for how to prepare players for the next level, what they do on a daily basis for their pitching program, and we also dive into some mental game training. Without further ado, here is Descahe Bomberry. Coach Baum, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Definitely. And so we a couple of weeks ago, uh, now, I guess, at the, at the time of this publishing, uh, we got the opportunity to meet at the ABCA where you were getting an award for being one of the ABCA assistant coaches of the year. And so I just wanted to take a second to t- say congratulations. Oh, thank you. That was a, that was a really cool deal. Uh, it was completely unexpected. Uh, I got a phone call from uh, Sheets. I guess it was early December, which was kind of, I thought, kind of odd for him to be calling me. Um, And uh, he went on to explain what they were doing with the uh, smaller schools. And they were starting to uh, award assistant coaches of the year for the smaller schools. And he told me that I was going to be the first JC guy from the Pacific uh, region, which I thought was really, really cool. Oh, and they they couldn't have picked a better... Uh, man to represent that and to be the first one and, and you know just meeting you for 15 or 20 minutes I can definitely tell that you are well deserving of that and and again they, they couldn't have picked a better person but for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better uh, just tell us a little bit about why you got into coaching and kind of how you were how you got to Sac City and where you're at today. You know, I think I knew at a pretty early age that I wanted to coach. Uh, I can remember remember being in high school and I also wrestled in high school, and I can remember thinking that I wanted to come back and be my high school's wrestling coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I was completely convinced that I was going to wrestle in college. Um, I actually put on a couple uh, recruiting trips to junior colleges for wrestling, but then it was the summer after my senior year. I decided I had a change of heart and decided that baseball was what I wanted to do, and then I. I actually thought I was going to have a, like a, a more of a normal nine to five job. And then I was, my plan was to coach uh, the American Legion team that I played for because I, uh, I had a lot of fun with that. 
playing on that team. I love the guys who coached me uh, when I was playing American Legion. And I thought that that's kind of what I was going to do. And then uh, when I went to the junior college, I went to Kasumnas River College. I'm kind of an outsider working at Sac City. But I went to Kasumnas River College, and uh, I had a great uh, coach there. His name was Rod Bilby. We're still, we still stay in touch. And I remember I used to do – I used to umpire a lot when we'd have our scrimmages if I wasn't pitching at them. And he came to me one day and was like, hey – you know, you're kind of good at this, um, and you seem to like umpiring. So would you ever think about going to umpire school? Hmm. He said, if so, I, I will, I'll help you. I'll help pay for it. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't want to get yelled at by coaches for the rest of my life, so I'm not sure I'm interested in that. Uh, I said, but I do think I want to coach, and I do think uh, I, I want to coach at this level. And he was kind of really a big part of – my motivation to coach at the JC level uh, because I, I just, I mean, he always took care of me. He always took care of his players. Uh, he was a really good person. He was a good coach. Um, and once I told him that I wanted to coach, he really kind of took me under his wing and uh, he would take me out recruiting with me or with him. And, you know, during practice, he would pull me aside and like, Hey, this is what we're doing. And this is why we're doing it. You know, we need to fix this. And so I became, Along with pitching on the team, I became kind of like a de facto player coach, and he just kind of got me started uh, on that path. Really, really grateful for the time I spent with him, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that we're still able to we're we're still friends. We still talk, and so I played two years there, and then I transferred to uh, Sonoma State University. Okay. Uh, I was actually there for three years because I got hurt after my junior year, and I. Like I said, I knew I wanted to go back and coach at the JC level. And through some mutual friends, Rob Cooper, who's now the head coach at Penn State, Coop and I became really good friends. That's cool. And he was working at Wake Forest at the time with Bobby Miranda. Okay. Bobby Miranda, I believe, is now the head coach at Western Carolina. And so Bobby had spent time at Eastern Kentucky University. And the head coach at EKU was at the time was Jim Ward, who uh, unfortunately passed away this past year. Uh, but he reached out to Bobby looking for a graduate assistant. And Bobby couldn't think of anybody. Bobby asked Coop, hey, do you know anyone that would want to be a GA uh, in Kentucky? And Coop thought of me. He called me that day, said, hey, you want to do this? I think this could probably happen for you. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> Why not? I got nothing else to do. You know, I just graduated and I was working in a restaurant and playing a lot of golf and knew that that wasn't my future, <laughs> either one of those. Okay. Um, and so later that day, Coach Ward called me and we had a few conversations and he, he said, hey, I think I want to I think I want you to come out here and, and help me coach. And he said, all you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take the, the GRE, if you can, as long as you can get into grad school here, the job's yours. And so I took the GRE and uh, got a good enough score. And you know, a couple months later, I'm I'm selling all my belongings and packing a duffel bag, and I flew to Kentucky, sight unseen. And when I got there, you know, at that time, which was in the fall of 1996, you know, the the OVC, the Ohio Valley Conference. It wasn't a very well-funded conference, so a lot of the schools were using GAs as basically full-time coaches. Definitely worked like a full-time coach. So, you know, I walked on campus and I 
immediately became a pitching coach and I was immediately thrown in the recruiting fire and it was, I was definitely learning on the fly. And that's really when I first started coaching for the first time. And I, again, very grateful for, for coach Ward taking a chance on me. Didn't really know me, talked to some people that knew me and, um, but you know, he was willing to, to gamble, uh, on some guy from California that he'd never met. And so while I was at EKU, uh, part of what I tried to do as far as recruiting goes is I was calling JCs in California, you know, trying to get players. And uh, because of my relationship with Rob Cooper, his best friend at the time was Andy McKay. And so Coop's like, hey, you should call, call Andy at Sac City and see what they have as far as players go. And we had met previously and we had played against each other growing up and that whole deal. Okay. So then... Andy and I got to be friends um, over the course of my two years at EKU. I finished my graduate assistantship. Like most guys, you know, when that happens, you're just you're expecting jobs to fall into your lap. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. Uh, at least in my case, it didn't. And I remember having a conversation with Andy, and he said, "Look, you're you're not going to have any money here for a few years, so you might as well not have any money and be at home." He said, "So if you come back here." We'll put you to work. Uh, we'll probably be able to get you some classes to teach part time. You can work our camps. We'll, you'll start doing private lessons. You know, you're not going to make a ton of money right away, but you're going to have a chance to come here and you have a chance to learn. And so I had one other opportunity. I had uh, spoke with Bob Warren at the time. He was the head coach at Indiana State, and that. That conversation had started like literally I was packing up my stuff to come home and he, he needed a coach. Uh, when I got back here, it's kind of an interesting story. I got back here and we were actually at practice or out on the field getting ready for practice. And he called the baseball office at Sac City and, and Jerry Weinstein was still there and he answered the phone and he came out with no one had cell phones back then. So he had to come out to the field to grab me and he's like, hey, the guy from Indiana State's on the phone. Uh, he said, I, I think he's going to offer the offer you a job. And he's like, Jerry said, so what are you thinking? And I said, well, I mean, this is a chance to be a division one coach and actually get paid. And he said, I think, I think I might want to do that. And Jerry looked at me and goes, I don't think I want you to. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, what do you mean? And he said, I, I don't want you to leave. I want you to be here. I want you here with us. I want you to come here and learn. I want you to help us coach. I want you to stay here. And I mean, I was just kind of blown away that Jerry didn't know me well at that time. We knew each other and you know, he'd seen me play, you know, in high school and stuff. But I remember like this, this thought of here you have maybe the, the best coach anywhere. And he's telling you to stick around and, and help him with his program. And yeah. mm-hmm. that was just kind of like, well, I, I, I can't go anywhere now. I have to stay. <laughs> right. And so that's how I, I, I got to Sac City, you know, that's, that's why I'm, I, I stayed at Sac City and that was, that's going on, that was 20, 21 years ago. Wow. That's awesome. And, and man, it's, you're throwing out some big time names that you've gotten, uh, to be influenced by and work with every single day. And, and I've had, I've had Jerry and, and Rob on the show and I'm sure I'd love to get Andy in the future, but you guys have an awesome and rich tradition at Sac City, and 
man, it's it, there's not a lot of junior colleges in the country that that have that. I guess I would say, and and so how how special is that to be able to have that just to be for recruiting and just to be able to to talk with those incoming freshmen and sophomores about how special that is. You know, it's really it, it's it's hard to describe because it really is a special special place, and you know, I, I don't I don't want it to sound like we're bragging or it's arrogance, but when you look at what has gone on there and without embellishing at all, and you look at the people who have come through there, the 40 plus big league players, the, the former players who are division one coaches, division one head coaches, division one assistant coaches, you look at all the, the former players and coaches who are uh, working in the front office uh, with big league teams and have been big league managers. And it's, it really is a special place. You know, I look at some of the things that I've been able to do and they're all a direct product of being able to connect myself to Sac city. Um, and when you talk to recruits, um, I think it's a big deal uh, because of uh, they understand the tradition a lot of them want to be a part of it. You know, a lot of them will come to games or they'll, they'll come to a practice and they might see an ex big leaguer who's at practice working out. You know, they, they might be on Twitter and, and see someone like Andy McKay and what he's doing at the Seattle Mariners or something that Jerry has posted or, you know, there's just, there's just so many of our former players and coaches out in the baseball world. I mean, it really is a, a special place. Like her, the first, the very first game that I ever coached, I can remember walking out onto the field. I was kind of looking around and I was kind of in awe. Uh, started looking back at like, okay, this is the same place where Larry Boa played. This is where Greg Vaughn played. This is where Fernando Vina played. And, you know, I can somehow connect, connect my name to that a little bit now. Oh, definitely. And um, yeah, it's, that's unbelievable. And, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about pitching and how you guys are developing pitchers. And so I, I just love to start in the off season because we get, we always get to start fresh, and we spend the whole summer trying to decide if what we're doing is the best thing and, and trying to figure out what we're tra- what we're gonna add or subtract from the from the next fall. So let's just go ahead and start with let's say uh, August or whenever whenever your guys report. You know, just kind of walk us through what you guys typically do um, from the pitching side, and and you know, how do you on ramp? Uh, how do you decide what you're having your players do? And essentially, just walk us through what a typical week would look like. And I, I know that's a broad question, depending on the the month. But just uh, I'm just going to open it up and let you let you roll with it. Sure. So the first thing we do, we spend the first week in a classroom, and that week is spent. Uh, a lot of it is just some administrative stuff pretty boring. But uh, during that time, along with the administrative part, we we have a meeting where it's basically we talk about the tradition and we talk about the expectations. Uh, we talk about the culture that we want to create. We talk about the history and uh, we want those guys to understand that a big part of what they're, they're there to do is to improve that tradition uh, and that culture. And the the standards are incredibly high and they're going to stay high they're not going anywhere and it's up to them to meet those expectations uh, also in that first week we start doing our mental game presentations 
you know, and traditionally the first one we, we do is we start talking about responsibility and what they're responsible for and, and what responsibility, responsibility really means. So uh, once we've done that, before we ever get on the field, uh, we, we're lucky that we work with a, a physical therapist. Uh, they also have a strength and conditioning part of their physical therapy, and they run all of our guys through a, a functional movement screening, and they run our guys through some strength tests and some power tests so that we can get an idea, basically, of how everybody's moving, what kind of shape they're in, um, are there any red flags for injuries, and then they can start to put together some corrective exercises for guys who might have something that's really jumping out at them. And so I will get, I get a spreadsheet from them with all the pictures on it, uh, with all the different tests. Um, and then to make it easy on me, they, they highlight, they highlight three different colors. There's green, which is obviously, all right, he's good to go. There's yellow, which, all right, let's keep an eye on this. And then there's red, which is he needs to see us before he does anything else. And so we'll go through that. And then I honestly will spend the first week of practice. Uh, talking about the throwing program and that's it because as a pitcher i don't know what else is more important than throwing so if they can't get through the throwing program correctly and kind of monitor themselves through the throwing program there's no real need to move on from that until they can do that the way they should Uh, in the past you know, I'd always give this speech of, hey, man, you know, you new guys don't try to keep up with the sophomores. They're in better shape than you. Just do what you feel you're capable of. And, you know, I finally realized that that never worked. And then new guys would try to keep up with the sophomores. And because we're, we're a big long toss program and we always have been. And so what I finally, finally realized, like, I need to kind of take a little bit more of a proactive approach here. And so. Uh, the first week, I don't let guys throw more than about 250 feet. And, you know, 250 feet isn't a magic number. I just think 250 feet is a number that a decent college pitcher should be able to get the ball to with uh, a decent amount of effort. But he's he's definitely not pushing the pedal to the metal. And so week two is more like 275. And then week three is about 300 feet. And then after that, I just kind of turn them loose and, and let them go. During that time, we'll start to introduce our plyo care work. The first couple of weeks are just, you know, more of a, a warm up, and then used for recovery stuff. You know, before we even get into that, I have guys fill out a questionnaire about what they think they're good at, what kind of experience they have with, you know, weighted balls and weightlifting, and what's their normal throwing program like. You know, if they were on their own, what would they do? Just so I can get an idea of of where they're coming from so that, you know, I think that as coaches, we, we have something in mind that we think is going to work and we're probably right for 20% of the population. We're probably dead wrong for 20% of the population. And we're probably somewhere in the middle for the the other 60% of the population. So when we can kind of pinpoint what guys are good at, uh, what kind of throwing fitness they have, we can do a better job of coaching them up. We can do a better job of keeping them healthy early on. Uh, it's been my experience that a lot of you know the the banged up shoulders and and that kind of stuff happens early in the fall. It's kind of like big league spring training. You look at spring training and lots of guys get hurt because you know, they probably try to do too much too fast. 
And so that's kind of how our fall gets started. Usually by the second week, we'll throw a bullpen. And then the third week, we will scrimmage uh, for the first time. And that's a very controlled scrimmage. We're looking to get guys 20 pitches or less and then kind of build up from there. I got you. And so it, it just sounds like, man, you guys are doing a ton of homework before you really get started. And I know that the assessments have been uh, a huge thing that's been really prioritized over the last couple of years. And, and so it, it, you guys aren't cookie cutter cutting anyone. No, not at all. You know, as long as I can remember, you know, going back to the 80s and 90s, you know, Sac City has always had a pretty high priority on player development. And if player development is your is something you truly, truly value, then you have to individualize. Now, does that mean if there's 20 pitchers, there's 20 different programs? No, I, I don't think in a college setting that you can you could probably do that. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of put guys in buckets. You know, you have your bucket of guys who maybe they're strong, but they don't move very well. Okay. You have your bucket of guys who move really well, but they're really weak. You know, you have your bucket of guys who maybe have a really good arm, but their secondary stuff isn't great or they have a really good arm and their command isn't great, you know, and the other side of that guys with good command, but they're throwing 80 to 82. So you can kind of group guys together and come up with plans that fit that group. Okay. And so now you've got, you know, three, four, five guys on a particular program and then another three or four guys on a different program. And then those programs need to be flexible because they might, they might change. Their body might change. They might become a better mover. The velocity might start to come up. I mean, they, I think the idea that as coaches that we that we should be grasping is that it's our job to help them get better um, and improve whatever it is they need to improve. If you have a kid who's 83, 84, and he wants to go pitch a, in the SEC or the Big 12, well, velocity is going to have to improve. And so – that guy needs to be on a velocity program. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a guy who's 90 to 93 already and he wants to pitch in the SEC, well, he doesn't need velocity. He needs to stay healthy. He needs to make sure he can really, really pitch. And then the SEC is a possibility. I think you just need to figure out whatever whatever each guy needs, uh, try to maximize the time you spend on those things. Um, and at the same time, I think we need to be careful because if you invest all your time in addressing a weakness, the strengths will disappear. You know, the, the strengths, that they're not some genetic thing that are never going to go away. If a guy has a really, really good curveball, doesn't have a very good changeup, and if you're spending 90% of your time in the bullpen, in your flat ground, working on the changeup that, that isn't great, the curveball is going to become pretty average. You need to be really, really careful that you don't take something they're really good at and just kind of on accident turn it into average because then you're going to end up with two very average pitches as opposed to one that might be elite and then one that's kind of deficient. That's probably a better a better recipe than having two very average pitches. Oh, definitely, and and I think that you hit the nail on the head, and, and I'm sure that there's a, a ton of communication that goes in with 
just helping the kids be aware of what they need to work on. And, and I know just from hearing you talk to them about that, I, that's definitely something that you guys that you guys do. And, and how often do you communicate on what their plans need to be and, and what they need to be doing? And just I'm, I'm thinking if, if there's some pitching coaches out there that are like, man, I, I really want to do something similar, but I don't know how often I need to be assessing or I need to be talking with them about this stuff, uh, what would your advice be for those guys? Well, I think you need to be um, a little bit careful with with the reassessment. I don't know that you need to do that on a weekly basis. I think you kind of you might run the risk of uh, some guys getting discouraged if they're not seeing huge jumps, you know, in a week. But I think when you're trying to identify what a guy needs to improve, you should figure out a way to really measure it, whether that's with a radar gun, whether that's using something like a Rapsodo whatever you have uh, access to, whether it's a strike percentage. I know that for a lot of people, technology is not affordable. I get it. But you can look at strike percentage. You can look at swing and miss percentage, those types of things. Those are all things that you can just, you can calculate with a pen and paper. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the strength stuff is pretty easy to assess, right? It's if you're squatting 225 week one, if you're squatting 225 in a week four, well, maybe there's something wrong with the program. And a lot of it, we try to start early on. We mentioned to, to we mentioned stuff to guys during the recruiting process. We mentioned stuff to guys throughout the summer. Hey, this is what I'm seeing. I think you know you should be looking at doing something like this. You know, the, the when we're recruiting guys, the number one thing we try to uh, address is strength. Just because most high school guys, when they graduate high school, just they're just not strong enough sure. to compete at the highest level. So that's one of the first things we will try to correct. But I think, you know, I think from the assessment standpoint, it's something that you know every few weeks, depending on where you are in the season, you know, if it's velocity, then get the radar gun back out. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's if you have access to to like a functional movement screen type thing, you know, run those guys back in there every couple months uh, if you have that that luxury. But I think it's really, really important when you're, when you're trying to develop players that you have like real information, not, not opinion, not, Hey, the curveball looks like it's better. You know, I think you need to have a, a better way of measuring that um, other than just trying to use our eyes. And, you know, it's, I, I understand that it's not always the easiest thing in the world. And for a lot of guys, it's not, it's not comfortable to, to use information because they've never done it before. They're unfamiliar with it, but there, there are a lot of resources available. And I mean, anything that you think is important, if you just pump it into a spreadsheet of some kind and, and just keep track of what's happening, I mean, that's, that's data collection, you know, and that's something that can be evaluated and it doesn't have to be super complicated. It could be very, very simple. You know, I have a huge spreadsheet of tons of data that we collect in the fall and none of it is, you know, this crazy metric stuff. It's all pretty straightforward stuff that I think is important. It's, you know, it's total number of pitches. It's strike percentage. It's slugging percentage against. It's the number of strikeouts and walks they had. Okay. Pretty straightforward stuff mm-hmm. where you can look at that and look at each outing and go, okay, well, here in September, this is what he was like. Uh, here we are in November. Is anything changing? Uh, is he throwing more strikes? Uh, is the velocity going up? Uh, is he getting more guys to swing and miss? And if he is, what pitches are they swinging and, and missing more? 
Well, that's again, that's not stuff that is super complicated. I mean, everyone charts the game, right? You no, know, I think that's that's not new to anybody. We all use charts of some sort. It's just a matter of taking the information that you have on whatever charts you're using and putting it in one place. I mean, that's all you're really doing for anything you do. You know, if if it's getting the radar gun out for your pull downs or getting a radar gun out for your exit velocity or whatever it might be. Uh, all of those things are good, and all of those things will help you. I mean, anytime you're able to record something and keep track of it, it's going to help you because now you, you, as a coach, you can take a step back and go, okay, this is what we've been doing for the last six weeks, and this was the measurement that we that we value that we think is important. And so we've been going about this this particular way for six weeks, and nothing has changed. And so then the hard part becomes, all right, is it not changing because maybe the guys haven't bought into it yet? Or is it not working because what we're doing doesn't work? You know, the way we're teaching it isn't working. That's a hard one. But again, if you want to be a good coach and you want to help your players, you you have to be able to, to look at what you're doing, evaluate what you're doing as a coach. And sometimes you got to make the hard call of, well, what I thought worked really doesn't work according to this information and maybe we need to make some adjustments and how we're coaching these guys. Sure. And so on a little bit different topic, a couple of, let's say, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, you were, you were giving a barnstormers clinic presentation over the middle game. And I, I know that it's something that I haven't hit on enough because to be honest, I don't think, I don't think we can, I think it's extremely important, and we always talk about it's you know the the game's ninety percent mental, but we don't spend ninety percent of practice on the mental game. But but anyway, so I know it's definitely something that I need to do a better job of helping kids with. But if you don't mind, uh, can you walk us through what uh, you teach, and uh, even even better, tell us about how you do it? Sure. So the kind of the ultimate goal of the mental game, uh, at least in our program, and uh, I would imagine that most people who spend a lot of time with a mental game have a similar thought. They just might phrase it differently. But our goal is to play each each game one pitch at a time, so that you know basically you're playing you know the average nine inning game is going to have about three hundred pitches. So you're trying to play three hundred mini games during the course of nine innings. Okay. Now, that's almost impossible to do, but that's kind of the goal. And so what we do, uh, we start right away. And we start talking about the mental game on the recruiting visit um, and its importance and how we're going to do it. And we, we it keeps going through throughout the summer and, and into the fall. So what we do, we every morning, uh, I use a group messaging app and every morning, our guys get something from me uh, that's mental game related, whether it's about focus, whether it's about confidence, whether it's about work ethic, you know, what whatever seems to fit at that time. So we try to do a weekly topic. So, for example, the first week is always responsibility. And so every morning at seven o'clock, I have it set. Because um, that'll be in the, I mean they're coming out of weights at that time, they get uh, a message from me, and it might be a link to a video, it might be a like a word document for them to read, um, could be a lot of things. So that happens every day that we meet as a team, they'll get something from me, and then 
once a week, we have a mental game meeting, like a, a longer one, you know, 40, 45 minutes where we go over the topic of the week. And so, you know, like I said, uh, responsibility is, is one, um, being a good teammate is one breathing is one routines would be another one. So if we will, have our big mental game meeting once a week. And then on the back of every practice plan, uh, I'll have something written up that connects to that weekly topic. And then uh, every day before practice, we go over that for, it usually takes, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, depending on uh, which one it is. And so every day our guys are getting two things from us about the mental game. And the reason we throw so much at them is because some of them are going to read and it's just, it's not going to register. Okay. Uh, it's not going to hit them. But if you, you know, over the course of a 14 week fall practice schedule, um, you send out two a day, something's going to hit them eventually. So we throw a lot at them. I think probably the, um, the three things we, we hit on a lot are breathing routines and body language. Like if I was going to start with three things, I would probably start with those three things. There are other things too, but all those things are, are back, come back to the mental game because the mental game really is, is about making choices. Uh, It's about thinking about your thoughts. You know, it's, it's understanding where your brain goes in stressful situations you know, it's about understanding how you think when you're really going well. You know, when, when you're really swinging the bat well, you're pitching well, what are you thinking about? You know, how are you preparing yourself mentally when you're pitching well? How do you, how are you going about things when you're not playing well? And so one of the things that, that we do is we, we just carve out time and practice to talk about these things. Um, you know, we, we have guys you know, we have our guys take a deep breath in between swings off the tee or in between throws when they're playing catch. I want guys to work on a in-between pitch routine during batting practice and uh, throwing their bullpens when they're doing their flat ground. Because if they don't do it in practice, you can't expect it to show up in a game. Right. And I think that's a mistake that we make. Is like, you know, every coach in the world says, hey, you need to focus and you need to be confident. But then we don't teach them how to do it. We just hope that they can figure it out on their own. And, you know, yeah, you get some guys who are farther along in that that development, their mental development. For the most part, none of them are very good uh, at that at that stuff. Right. Um, you know, they've they've performed well because they have some physical talent. Well, eventually that physical talent is going to even out. And for some guys, that might not be until they get to professional baseball. But eventually the talent level is going to be even. And at that point, what are you going to have that's going to separate you? And it, it has to be your, your mental game. You know, it has to be your ability to deal with failure. It has to be your ability to deal with distractions. And that's, that's what we coach our guys on. I, I want practice to be mentally and emotionally challenging. You know, I think that, for a long time, and I think it's starting to change. Finally, the, the baseball world was more about, hey, let's make sure everybody's comfortable and, and confident in practice. Well, what are, you, what are you getting comfortable and confident in? You know, it, it is 
throwing a bullpen with no one around and no balls and strikes and, and no hitter. Is that really the confidence that you want? Because I can tell you that when the game starts, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a hitter, there's a count, you know, there's another team yelling and screaming at you. And so you have to try, try to create a practice environment that's going to match as much as you can the game environment. Okay. And I, there are times when uh, a pitcher needs to work on his delivery. And there are times when a hitter needs to work on a swing. Uh, but most of your time should be spent in practice in more of a competitive game-like type atmosphere because that's how you're going to have to perform. And sure. the more often you're exposed to that, the better off you're going to be. Let me take a few seconds to tell you guys about OnBaseU. OnBase University is an organization that studies how the human body moves in baseball and softball. They offer certification seminars that teach coaches, trainers, and medical professionals how to assess an athlete's physical ability to perform movement patterns that are specific to hitting and pitching. For example, they just put up a blog post on their website, onbaseu.com, that discussed why hip internal rotation is important in hitting and how they evaluate it with their OnBaseU screen. If you want to learn more about OnBaseU, I did a podcast with the OnBaseU founder, Dr. Greg Rose, episode 78, and he talked about how he modeled the screen after golf assessments that he created for TPI. They are hosting pitching and hitting seminars in Phoenix, Newark, and Houston over the next few months. I will be attending one soon, and I hope to see you there. Sure, and so I'm always always looking for ways to be able to do that and to and 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 again if we do everything game like all the time they're going to get so let me take a step back and say the the kids that i that i have are varying between 13 and 18 years old and so so i'm constantly trying to stay in the middle of we want to make it game like and we want to prepare them for the game but they also need some foundational movement patterns and skills and things that we're trying to accomplish first before we just throw them to the wolves. So that's always a delicate balance for me, but I am literally always looking for ways in practice we can make th- things more game-like. So do you mind sharing some of the things that you found that you guys do that, that help with that? Sure. So uh, one of the things we do is I keep from a, a and I'll just start with the pitching side of it. Yeah. We do our flat, for example, our, our flat ground work, right? We do our flat. Everyone does flat ground, right? Mm-hmm. That's not that's not new to anybody, but we keep track of our flat ground. We record our flat ground. We have ways where we create competition in our flat ground. We have ways where you know I'll I'll, I'll create a, a flat ground script, right? And, and all right, you're gonna you're gonna throw ten curveballs, and you need to get six out of ten to be quality pitches. Because 60% is just kind of a, a bare minimum standard for strike percentage. So that's that's what we use. And so that'll be for everybody. And if you can't do it, then the next day your flat ground script might be the same. So that you have to go and do it again. Um, so we do that a decent amount. Uh, we try to, to bring competition into our flat ground as much as possible. And again, a lot of this... Uh, this is not like week one stuff. This is we're a month in and, and guys are starting to feel a little more comfortable and they're starting to feel like they fit in and they've got an idea of how we're doing things. That's when they can start to throw more of the competitive stuff into the equation. Okay. But I think just by keeping track, 
so that they're, they're, there's a record of what they're doing lends itself to a more game-like type atmosphere. And you could do it where, you know, the, the guy catching the flat ground is calling balls or strikes. One of the things that we'll do is we'll create a situation. We'll give the flat ground work some context. So, okay, not only are you going to throw a 6 out of 10 curveball for, curveballs for strikes, hopefully, there's a really good base runner at first base. And you have to throw your 6 out of 10 curveballs with different tempos every time. We'll be out there with stopwatches if guys are working out of the stretch and, and doing their flat ground. Like, hey, that's way too slow. We need to pick up the pace. Things like that will all help. You know, one of the things that we do is we want to also reward guys when they do something well. So we'll have weekly competitions where whoever has the best percentage during their flat ground for that week or their bullpens for that week. You know, I'll I'll buy them lunch or something along those lines. Because we do the same thing with our bullpens, too. Our bullpens are usually charted. One A, a, a really simple thing to do with bullpens to make them more game-like is to ha- just have a standard. Okay. That by itself changes things dramatically. You know, it's one thing to try to throw a fastball in with no one standing there. It's a different thing to throw a fastball in when there's a hitter. I think a really good idea that I actually stole from another coach is if you're going to script a bullpen, which we do a lot of, give the script to the catcher. And so the catcher is actually going to give signals to create more of a game-like feel. Uh, I think that most of your pitches out of the bullpen and your flat ground should be from the stretch because that's when you're going to make most of your most most of your important pitches in a game are going to be from the stretch. Sure. I think you should monitor the time they take in between pitches. You know, again, like going back to the base runner who's trying to steal second, you know, and we're trying to stop him. We'll set it up so, you know, guys are, are varying their looks to second base as if there's a runner at second base in their bullpens. You know, anything that you can think of that a guy is going to have to do in, in a game is important. You could add PFP to a bullpen. Or, or your flat ground. Uh, have a coach stand by the catcher every so often. The pitcher throws a pitch. The coach standing with the fungo hits a ground ball back to him. Or interesting. Or rolls out a bunt. Or you know whatever. Anything that that might possibly come up. You know, you're going to want to try to practice somehow, some way. Right. And most of the time with PFPs, they they know that something is coming. So I, re- I really, I like that a lot. And, and that's something that I'm going to have to talk with our pitching coach, see if we can incorporate uh, some of that. And, and again, uh, all of the, I really like all of those things. And a couple of years ago, we were griping about, especially with the young guys, not understanding our sign sequences and then messing them up in a game. And then we went to, instead of, of us telling the pitchers what they were doing, for the catchers having a script right in front of them, right behind the plate, that they would be calling everything. And so, uh, and especially they would call like our picks. Like we, we have a certain sequence that we use that whenever we want to pick, well, when do we practice it? And if we want to, if we want to, if we're calling a pick, we definitely want it to happen. So that's definitely something that, that we've had to add as well. And, and most of the time it's, you know, if, if kids are the ones messing up and it's usually mental stuff, it's usually stuff that we haven't taught enough, at least in my experience. And so that's probably my fault. But I want to know, you know, I especially because I can't go watch a lot of people practice. I want to know what a typical practice plan looks like for you guys. And and you could if you don't mind, take us through 
kind of uh, your PO plan and, and what you guys are doing right, right in season. And then if you guys have some two-way two way guys, I know there's a there's a lot of coaches out there who are curious as to what they can do to make sure they're getting the an adequate amount of work because I don't think there's enough time in the day for them to get as much infield out or infield outfield defensive play hitting pitching and uh, arm care work as as they can because they're two way guys. But what's your best advice on that as well? So <laughs> let's go. If you could take us through a typical practice plan, and then if you've got two way guys, how do you incorporate those guys? Uh, so the the pitcher's practice plan, uh, we actually start early. Our our practice is almost separate from the position players. Uh, and that changes a little bit from the fall to the spring. Uh, when we get into the spring, obviously it's a more team-oriented type practice. But the pitchers start an hour earlier. And so they come out, they go through their own, walk about, meet them. They go through their, their own dynamic warm-up. And a lot of times with class, that it's they might need to be staggered, but they come out, dynamic warm up, go through uh, Jager tubing, go through some wrist weight exercises, uh, go through plyo care work with uh, weighted balls, and that there's going to be some variety there depending on the day. Some guys are doing one program, other guys are doing a different program. Once that gets done, we'll go into our throwing program. Uh, our throwing program starts really short and with some mechanical cues we're trying to work through, and that might vary from guy to guy, but there's going to be some mechanical stuff that's going to be done under a really low intensity, but still throwing. And then our throwing program will slowly work its way back. I think one of the things that that I'm pretty lucky that I can pretty much do whatever I want with the pitchers uh, from a day-to-day basis, and we have as much time as we need. I know that's not the case in a lot of places. So our, our throwing program is untimed. It's pretty much unscripted. If guys want to throw to 320 feet one day, then we're going to throw to 320 feet. And if that takes 25 minutes, then we're going to take 25 minutes to play catch that day. Because like, like I mentioned before, the throwing program, there's, there's nothing more important for a pitcher. So to try to restrict it at all or to put limits on it, I don't think is in the best interest of, of most pitchers. So we'll go through the throwing program. Some of the guys are going to be, uh, it'll be their um, high intensity pull down day. So they'll finish up their throwing program with that. Once everyone is done with that part of throwing, uh, we get into our flat ground work. Uh, our flat ground work is going to take between 20 and 30 minutes, probably. And we're going to work on all of our pitches. Um, part of that work will involve kind of some lead up drills that we do for different pitches. Um, and then we'll get into like more of a pitch making part of our flat ground work. And then from there, uh, we'll get into some, you know, more of the traditional PFP and and pickoff work and stuff like that. That might be a time when we actually do go and do some team defense with the position players. And once we've gone through our PFP stuff, we're we're going to do something routine related, breathing related uh, with the pitchers. And if you come to practice, you might see our pitching staff 
all out laying down. <laughs> or you might see our pitching staff going through their delivery with their eyes closed and just shadowing pitches cool. and working on their visualization. And we try to do that. That's something we do every day. Um, and we actually, on the pitcher's practice plan, it literally says breathe in between every throw because that's something that's very controllable. It's very impactful. Mm-hmm. And it's something I want to, that, that needs to become second nature or right? the ability to just kind of give yourself an opportunity to check in with a deep breath to make sure that mentally you're in the right place. And if you, you know, if you're rushing through your throwing program, that's not going to happen. And that, that habit of rushing through your throwing program tends to show up when you really don't want it to, which is in a tight spot in the game. So we want to make sure that becomes uh, a big part of what they do. So we have to practice it. It has to be on the practice plan so that they know Uh, we're pretty lucky too, that we've been able to create a culture where like guys will call each other out on their routines. Like, Hey man, you're not breathing. You're not doing anything. You're just throwing for the sake of throwing. Um, And I can kind of, take a step back. It, it's more meaningful when your buddy tells you that you're doing something wrong oh, yeah. as opposed to your coach. And then from the, for the two way, uh, the two way perspective. And believe me, we have not figured out the two way thing yet. We're trying hard. We have currently, uh, three guys who are two way guys. And so ideally for them, I think well, what we do is most of their throwing uh, is done with the pitchers. Okay. So, which can be a little bit of a problem with the defensive side. I think for an outfielder, it's not as big of a deal. But I think for an infielder, it can kind of be an issue because I don't want a guy to, say, go through his throwing program, go through his flat ground, and then go take 50 ground balls and fire the ball across the diamond. Mm-hmm. You know, I just... I don't want that to happen. It's just too much work. So try to get as much of their throwing done with the pitchers when they, so they'll go through their throwing, they'll go through their flat ground. And usually at at that point, I will send them off to go hit. And so I end up spending extra time with them, like outside of practice, you know, doing some PFP stuff or going over some signal stuff just because they're, you know, they're, they're trying to do two very difficult things. And so they're going to need extra attention. Um, so I think that's kind of uh, the basic way we handle two way guys. And I think some good advice that I got is when you're dealing with a two way guy, when you're trying to structure their practice and how you should use them in games is to look at what is their impact on your team. So for example, if you have a two way guy, who's going to hit third for you, and he's going to be your eighth or ninth pitcher. Well, most of his time should be spent hitting, right? He's going to have a much larger impact uh, offensively than he is as a pitcher and vice versa. You know, if your your number one starter is also a hitter, well, most of his time needs to be spent pitching. You know, and I'm sure there's that rare occasion where your number one starter is also hitting third. <laughs> I haven't experienced that yet. We, uh, uh, we actually have that this year. So he's our third baseman. And so that that's going to be an interesting interesting way. But I, no, I I really like that a lot. And and we were at uh, the Oklahoma Baseball Coaches Association Clinic this weekend, and uh, it they they're so ORU's starting shortstop last year was one of their one of their relief pitchers, and and they they basically said the exact same thing that you did is 
you you have to take away throws from somewhere. And uh, they monitored just like you were talking about. And and I think that, you know, obviously if you're talking about that and, and Wes Davis is talking about that, then that's uh, that you we're all on the right track if we're doing something similar. And so with the two-way guys, I, I love that answer. And, you know, another thing that that I really enjoy hearing about, and that's whatever your starting routine is. And if you don't mind, so let's say uh, let's say your guy starts on Friday. What does the rest of his week consist of? And and I'm sure it you've talked about communication the entire time with the player. But tell us about you know what what the rest of his week would look like, and and how you guys would structure that. Sure. So uh, after a guy start, uh, we're immediately going to start some recovery protocols. Okay. Whether and whatever that is, it doesn't. Uh, we, we just happen to use stuff that we've taken from the guys at Driveline. Again, it's not a driveline program. It's just kind of a template that they have that that we've borrowed. And I allow our guys to tweak it any way they want. It's their arm. So uh, I think it's – I just kind of go, look, here's where, here are all the different things that you can do to speed up your recovery. Let's pick some of these and figure out which – which ones you like the most, you know, whether that's doing plow balls with a trampoline, whether that's doing Jager tubing again, whether that's the arm bar or some combination or, or all three. Uh, I want that to start almost immediately. Uh, the next day, I would like guys to throw the next day. Uh, it doesn't have to be a ton of throwing. To me, I think just from a purely physical standpoint, and I'm sure there's a lot of PT guys who would disagree and, and that's okay. I'm not a PT guy, and they might be right. But I want a guy, after making a start, I want him to be able to throw the next day. I think that's a, a, a sign of a healthy, strong arm that he can go out and play catch uh, after pitching. Now, does it have to be 300 feet? No, absolutely not. But I think that there is something to be said for throwing as often as possible. Again, doesn't always have to be at a high intensity, but you know, some light throwing, uh, as long as we keep the intensity down is probably going to help, you know, it can act as some active recovery work. So we will start that process right away. Uh, like I said, uh, I want them to throw ideally the next day. And I don't mind if somewhere in that seven day window, you know, they come to me and say, Hey, I, I don't want to throw on this day. I'm okay with that. You know, it's not my preference, but I'm all right with it. So uh, I kind of let them pick and choose. I want them to be able to long toss still. I want them to still go through their plow care stuff every week. So kind of the way I'll, I'll do this, Jonathan, I'll just kind of, I'll give them a weekly breakdown of, all right, this week you're pitching on this day. And these are the things that you should accomplish in the seven day window. You kind of pick and choose how you want that to lay out. So, there's going to be, you know, three days of plyo care stuff in there. I want there to be two or three days of long toss in there. If a guy is pitching on Friday, he's going to throw his bullpen probably Tuesday. doesn't have to be. I'll ask usually. Some guys like to do it. If they're pitching on Friday, they'd want to do it on Wednesday. And that's okay. Uh, I don't have all the answers. So if they feel a little more strongly about that, then I'm good with that. I'm Definitely going to have them go in and see our trainer at some point, mm -hmm. um, ideally the next day, and 
just kind of have the trainer move them around passively and make sure that, you know, nothing crazy happened in their last outing. And then uh, our trainers are great. You know, if they'll email me or text me and say, uh, such and such, he's fine, good to go. He can do whatever he needs to do or or the other side, hey, you know what, we should probably slow him down for a couple of days and then see how he feels. But, you know, I, I try not to put like, too many hard and fast rules in, the, in place because I don't know how everyone's going to feel after they throw. I try to provide kind of a roadmap as to what I think is best and let them figure out uh, what they think is best. And, I, you know, if I see something that it, I feel pretty strongly about that I don't think is helping them, then I'll step in and say, hey, look, let's talk about this. I don't think this is ideal currently. It might be eventually. I just don't think it is now. I, I, I always joke that, you know, every player has a goal somewhere out there and they're, they're driving down this road trying to reach their goal. And as coaches, we're just kind of the guardrails. You know, they get off track and we, we knock them back, mm-hmm. knock them back on track. So one of the things that we, I try to get away from, I, I don't want to baby guys during the season. You know, I want their throwing volume to stay up fairly high because I want them to stay in shape. You know, I want them to be stronger at the end of the year. Uh, and part of that is just measuring and monitoring pitch counts and, you know, making sure you don't get too carried away there. But honestly, I think as a coach dealing with your starting pitchers and even as the, as the starting pitcher doing that is way, way easier than trying to, to manage your bullpen guys. I mean, that, that can be a real challenge. Oh, for sure. Well, let's go ahead and you're a guy that, that is learning a ton at a, you know, a really fast rate and, and you, you constantly, you know, in our conversations talk about some of the different things that you guys are doing and and adding and, and, uh, but I want to know what's, what's something that you've learned lately that's, uh, that you're really excited about. You know, I've really become kind of nerdy about, uh, pitch development and getting into the metrics behind pitch development because there's so much information that's readily available. You know, you, let's say you, you're working on a a certain pitch and you can, you know, there's, there's a big leaguer who throws a similar type pitch to what you're trying to create. And and you can go online to a place like Brooks baseball or baseball savant. And uh, you can look up uh, the movement profile of that pitch. Um, And then you can try to try to create something similar. Now, again, I'm lucky that, I get to do that using a wrap soto, mm-hmm. and I understand that not everyone has that same option. Um, but that's something to me that has become really interesting. And and I always joke that I I, I just get into these these deep dives and, and pitch effects, and next thing you know, two hours have gone by, and my brain is full of horizontal and vertical breaks uh, of all these different pitches. You know, recently in the last five or six weeks, I've heard two really good strength coaches speak. Uh, Nick White at the ABCA and uh, Zach DeCant at uh, Pitchapalooza in Nashville. And they really, really emphasized movement training and movement-based training. So I've really started to investigate that side as well. And this past summer, so I spent three or four years really trying to teach myself the best way to go about the mental game. And so this past summer, I switched it completely and I, I bought a biomechanics textbook and I bought a kinesiology, uh, 
a structural kinesiology textbook. And so I've been going through those, um, trying to figure out what all this stuff means and how much of it can I apply and how much do I need to apply. So that's, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I've been doing lately. I'm trying to think what else, what else have I been doing? Those are probably the two biggest things that kind of the pitch development stuff and just a lot of the, the data and the metrics. Uh, we have an old, I don't know if you're familiar with Inside Edge. It's a scouting software that I'm pretty sure they still use it in the big leagues. We have an old version of it. Okay. Uh, from like 2006 or 2007, um, where you can really start pulling some stuff out of that's really, really cool. And I use it mainly for self-scouting. What are we doing? Like really doing? We all have our our opinions of what we think we're doing, but I can pull out information from there and, you know, I can find out, hey, uh, for, for whatever reason on the on the 1-0 count, we're just getting hammered. Now, why is that? So then I can go back a little deeper and say, well, on the 1-0 count, we're throwing 75% fastballs, and we're trying to throw them to this location this percentage of the time. Okay, well, maybe that's why. Maybe we can make some adjustments there. So that stuff to me is really cool. It's really interesting. And I can, I have probably 12 or 13 years worth of games in there that, that are saved. So I can figure out, a lot of trends and figure out what's worked for us, what's worked in the past, what's worked recently, uh, what's worked against certain teams. So I think that stuff is really cool. And that's kind of where, where I've really been spending a lot of my time. No, I'm right there with you. And, you know, seeing those guys talk about that and then definitely with, with like a TPI and on base you and, and not that, not that it's, it's something that's new, but it's something that's becoming more and more, important at least or the uh i guess the the idea behind it and why we should do it is becoming more and more important and and so that's something that i've definitely been digging in and and so um i'd be remiss to say to talk about anything other than our players because that's that's why we're in it and i i love this question just because there's always things that i'm looking to add to our practices that our players love so say you show up tomorrow and you tell the guys, hey, we're doing this today, uh, and they just they love it, and you know that they do. So what are some of those things that come to mind whenever I ask you that? Three things pop into my head right away. So we have something that I came up with a few years ago. It's called 20 Minutes of Hell. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's not nearly as bad as it sounds, I promise. <laughs> so basically what it is is you start with 20 minutes, um, and I come up with it's – it's a drill for flat ground for flat ground work to, to, so that, you know, it doesn't just become monotonous and, and boring. So what it is, is I will come up with a location for their fastballs, a location for their changeup or a type of changeup. Maybe it's a two strike changeup. Maybe it's a, a one, one count changeup. Uh, and then the same thing with a curveball. And so it's their job. Them, they're, they're working with a partner and they have, the, the idea is that you're going to throw five fastballs in a row to that location. They need to be quality. They don't have to be strikes. They don't have to be perfect. They just need to be good pitches. And if you miss before you get five in a row, you and your partner have to sprint and trade places. And then your partner starts, and then he has to try to do the same thing. And so they have to try to get through 
five fastballs in a row to a certain location, five changeups in a row to a certain location, and then five curveballs in a row to a certain location. Uh, and every time they miss, they have to start over at zero for that pitch. All right. And every time they miss, they trade places and they have to run. So what ends up happening, and this is why I like it so much. Uh, this well, personally, this is why I like it. I like it because obviously it's competitive. It adds a lot of stress and anxiety to practice because guys want to finish and they know when like time is getting short and they're nowhere close or, you know, when they get to the fourth one, they've got four in a row, that fifth one can always be a challenge. Um, there's a lot of ragging that goes on. I just think it creates a really, really cool environment and they love it and they, they embrace it. They love the challenge. Mm-hmm. And so what we've added to it, I'm not sure this is why they like it so much. Uh, but if you don't finish, which, you know, that's un- not uncommon that, you know, three or four guys won't finish the next day at practice, you have to sing 30 seconds of a song, not, and it can't be like happy birthday. It has to be a real song. You have to sing 30 seconds of a song to the rest of the pitching staff. And it's awesome. I mean, there's, there's like guys come up with routines. Like they have like a a whole dance thing that comes with it. Uh, It's really cool. Uh, I think it's really good for just kind of them bonding. It does create, you know, competition and they, they really enjoy it. So that's definitely something when, when guys like they request it now, when guys see that they're, they're ready to go. We do this thing with, with comebackers during PFP stuff, we take rag balls and the guys are like 50 feet away from home plate. And I just try to rip them as hard as I possibly can right at them. And there's a competition for that kind of the last man standing. And the, the idea is if you can get a glove on it, and you don't, and it gets past you, you're out. That becomes super competitive. And, you know, it's, it's, I like it because they can start to rag me also. Like if I don't hit a good hard line drive right at somebody or hard ground ball and kind of backspin one out there, they're going to give it to me a little bit, which, you know, I like that. Uh, but they love that. They love the competition. You know, they love to see their buddy take a rag ball off the knee. You know, <laughs> they love that part. Uh, and anytime we bring out uh, the radar gun for anything, whether it's plyo care stuff or pull downs or whatever, they go crazy for the radar gun. Also, well, I'd say those three things are really the things that they really love the most. And anytime they can face a hitter, they're they're definitely going to hop on board, even if it's like you know not their day to do it. Mm-hmm. They always want to get in there and compete against the hitter and and see how things are see how they stack up. I would say those things are probably their favorites for sure. Especially 20 minutes of hell. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. They, they absolutely love it. Definitely. You, you had me scared a little bit on the, on the intro, but it sounds like, it sounds a whole, <laughs> like you said, it sounds a whole lot more fun than, than the name. But before you go, uh, this is probably the most, most, uh, asked question on any podcast in general, but, uh, what, what are some of your favorite books and resources that have shaped your coaching career and, and that you want to share with us? Um, if I would, if I was going to pick a book that has shaped me as a coach and really 
the more I think about it as a person, it would be Revisa's book, Heads Up Baseball. It's when I came back to Sac City, I just got this this rude introduction kind of to this this whole other side of coaching that I had never really investigated. And it didn't take long to figure out that this is really a difference maker. This is really where you can have an impact on people and not just from a baseball standpoint. Um, and I got to know uh, Ken a little bit in the early 2000s. Uh, he would come and, and, and work with our team. He wasn't quite as busy uh, as he became. He wasn't quite as uh, famous as he had eventually became. So we were able to get him to come up and work with our guys for a few years. And it was always just an amazing experience. And so meeting him uh, and reading the first book and then 2.0, really, and it sounds almost overly dramatic, kind of a life-changing thing for me. Because the stuff you, you learn in those books – yeah, obviously he wrote them for baseball players, but those things all apply to your real life. You know, being prepared, uh, being able to stay in the moment, you know, having a real plan for what you're trying to to do from a, from a day-to-day deal. Uh, that's real life stuff, and it applies across the board. So I think that if I was going to pick one book, it would be, it would be well, th- that combination of books. I would really, really gotten into the podcast. Uh, I think they're awesome. I can't think of a better way to have access to coaches, people in the business world, uh, athletes, like you'd never have that access anywhere else, you know, for the most part, but you can hear them speak and, and hear what they're all about and, and their philosophies and how they go about dealing with people and how they deal with success. And so, I mean, it's just, they're just awesome. So, you know, I, I love yours. Uh, I love the ABCA. I love the Driveline podcast. I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with uh, Michael Gervais, mm-hmm. Finding Mastery, Finding Mastery podcast. He has some great, great people on there. You know, I I, I think social media is a great resource. I think Twitter can be awesome. Obviously, you got to kind of pick and choose your your battles on Twitter, but. You know, guys like Eric Cressy put out amazing content on Twitter. The Driveline guys put out amazing content on Twitter. Lance Wheeler has amazing content on Twitter. Paul Nyman. I mean, there's just so much um, good information. Uh, the guys at 108, you know, Eugene Bleeker, They there's just so much good stuff out there that's free. And I think, you know, for I think young coaches need to be careful sometimes because there's so much that they end up trying to do everything. And I understand that's overwhelming, but I think that to not use that information, uh, it just doesn't make a ton of sense to me. And then for some books that I I enjoy, uh, I think for coaches or anyone who's who's thinking about starting a business, I don't know if there's a better book than Legacy. Uh, It's amazing. I mean, it's, you, you could run a business based off Legacy, you could start a the baseball team from legacy. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, I like uh, I like Simon Sinek and the stuff he's done. I really like Ryan holiday. The book talent code, I think is really, really good. Uh, I'm currently actually reading uh, culture code. John C. Maxwell has some great books. John Gordon has amazing books. The, the cool thing with John Gordon's books, uh, if people are not familiar with them is that they're really short and really easy reads with a lot of really good stuff in them. 
There was a book called The Habit Loop that I think is really impactful. So, I mean, there's there's a long list, but those are some of the ones that I was thinking about that kind of came to mind almost immediately that I that I've read recently. No, I love those, and I, and those are definitely all books that if you are if you haven't heard about those or if you haven't picked those up yet, I definitely encourage you guys to do so. And and I and I'm right there with you. It's one of those. It's I run a podcast every week, and it's really hard to get to listen to guys like yourself who have so much good stuff going on, and then try and figure out okay, how can I use this or what can I use and how can I implement it without just going into information overload. So man, I'm right there with you too. And especially after the last two weekends of ABCA and OBCA, and we're listening to all these great speakers and man, it's, it's definitely uh, one of those things you got to sit down and go, okay, what, what can I take away? What actually can I do? And what can I maybe put on the back burner and think about at a later date when it's not preseason? So I'm right there with you, but you know, uh, Coach Baum, I, I appreciate you taking the time to share so much with us today, and you really gave us a great look in, inside uh, the program. And so if there's anybody else that, that wants to get in touch with you and maybe ask you about anything in general, and uh, what would be the best way to do so? Uh, well, I'm definitely on social media, like most people. That, that's an easy one. It's uh, Coach underscore Bomber. if you want to look me up on Twitter. Or you can email me. My email address is bomber, D as in dog, at S-C-C dot Los, L-O-S, Rios, R-I-O-S dot E-D-U. Either one of those would be good. And, you know, if anyone has any questions, I'd be more than happy to, to answer, you know, have, have as I've, as I've gotten older, I realize I'm not the young guy in the room anymore, so I, I feel like I should be trying to help those guys out. I was really lucky uh, as a young coach to have people help me, and so I feel I owe it to to the younger coaches out there who are just kind of getting their feet wet and trying to figure things out to try to help them out any way possible. Uh, I may not have all the answers, but I can definitely try to point you in the right direction to help you find them. For sure. And, you know, I'm just going to open up the mic for you. I'll make sure I put your contact info down in the show notes. But is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Uh, like, you know, I think as coaches, I think we, and I, and I was probably a lot like this when I was younger. When you're a coach, coaching isn't about you. It's not about the coach. It's, it's always about the players. And it's uh, what are you giving to them? You know, I, I really believe that you know, baseball should be a, a small part of what we're doing. And, you know, we should be, we should be coaching people uh, as much as anything else. Uh, and when you can do that, when you can uh, help your players uh, feel like you care about them, I think you, uh, from a baseball side, you'll get more out of them, but I think you need to, they need to know that you're there for them and you're trying to help them and, you know, you, you need to show them that, that you can. I think that's how you're going to get the, the most bang for your buck. Understanding where it is they're coming from, where it is they're trying to go, and, and help them achieve whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. I think that's really where we find our success as coaches. It's easy to look at at the W's and the L's. That's a, a, pretty, a pretty basic way to evaluate what we're doing but I don't think that's really where we're going to have our, our biggest impact. Um, and when you listen to 
I heard it this weekend, you know, listen to, to Tim Corbin and, and, and Pat Casey and talking about people and talking about culture. Um, I think really that's, that's where we should be spending a lot of our time as coaches is, is doing, doing those things and just trying to help create better people. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.